Chapter Twenty Three of the Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty Three. Such was our fallen father's fate, yet better than mine own. He shared his exile with his mate. I'm banished forth alone. Waller. I will not attempt to describe the mixture of indignation and regret with which Ravenswood left the seat which had belonged to his ancestors. The terms in which Lady Ashton's billet was couched rendered it impossible for him, without being deficient in that spirit of which he perhaps had too much, to remain an instant longer within its walls. The Marquis, who had his share in the affront, was nevertheless still willing to make some efforts at conciliation. He therefore suffered his kinsman to depart alone, making him promise, however, that he would wait for him at the small inn called the Todd's Hole, situated, as our readers may be pleased to recollect, halfway betwixt Ravenswood Castle and Wolf's Crag, and about five Scottish miles distant from each. Here the Marquis proposed to join the Master of Ravenswood, either that night or the next morning, his own feelings would have induced him to have left the castle directly, but he was loath to forfeit, without at least one effort, the advantages which he had proposed from his visit to the Lord Keeper. And the master of Ravenswood was, even in the very heat of his resentment, unwilling to foreclose any chance of reconciliation which might arise out of the partiality which Sir William Ashton had shown towards him, as well as the intercessory arguments of his noble kinsman. He himself departed without a moment's delay, farther than was necessary to make this arrangement. At first he spurred his horse at a quick pace through an avenue of the park, as if by rapidity of motion he could stupefy the confusion of feelings with which he was assailed. But as the road grew wilder and more sequestered, and when the trees had hidden the turrets of the castle, he gradually slackened his pace, as if to indulge the painful reflections which he had in vain endeavoured to repress. The path in which he found himself led him to the mermaiden's fountain and to the cottage of Alice, and the fatal influence which superstitious belief attached to the former spot, as well as the admonitions which had been in vain offered to him by the inhabitant of the latter, forced themselves upon his memory. Old saws speak truth, he said to himself and the mermaiden's well has indeed witnessed the last act of rashness of the heir of Ravenswood. Alice spoke well, he continued, and I am in the situation which she foretold, or rather I am more deeply dishonoured, not the dependent and ally of the destroyer of my father's house, as the old Sibyl presaged, but the degraded wretch who has aspired to hold that subordinate character, and has been rejected with disdain. We are bound to tell the tale as we have received it, and considering the distance of the time and propensity of those through whose mouths it has passed to the marvellous, this could not be called a Scottish story unless it manifested a tinge of Scottish superstition. As Ravenswood approached the solitary fountain, he is said to have met with the following singular adventure. His horse, which was moving slowly forward, suddenly interrupted its steady and composed pace, snorted, reared, and, though urged by the spur, refused to proceed, 
as if some object of terror had suddenly presented itself. On looking to the fountain, Ravenswood discerned a female figure, dressed in a white or rather greyish mantle, placed on the very spot on which Lucy Ashton had reclined while listening to the fatal tale of love. His immediate impression was that she had conjectured by which path he would traverse the path on his departure, and placed herself at this well-known and sequestered place of rendezvous, to indulge her own sorrow and his parting interview. In this belief he jumped down from his horse, and making its bridle fast to a tree, walked hastily towards the fountain, pronouncing eagerly, yet under his breath, the words, Miss Ashton, Lucy. The figure turned as he addressed it, and displayed to his wondering eyes the features not of Lucy Ashton, but of old blind Alice. The singularity of her dress, which rather resembled a shroud than the garment of a living woman, the appearance of her person, larger, as it struck him, than it usually seemed to be. Above all, the strange circumstance of a blind, infirm, and decrepit person being found alone and at a distance from her habitation, considerable if her infirmities be taken into account, combined to impress him with a feeling of wonder approaching to fear. As he approached, she arose slowly from her seat, held her shriveled hand up as if to prevent his coming more near, and her withered lips moved fast, although no sound issued from them. Ravenswood stopped, and as, after a moment's pause, he again advanced towards her, Alice, or her apparition, moved or glided backwards towards the thicket, still keeping her face turned towards him. The trees soon hid the form from his sight, and yielding to the strong and terrific impression that the being which he had seen was not of this world, the master of Ravenswood remained rooted to the ground whereon he had stood when he caught his last view of her. At length, summoning up his courage, he advanced to the spot on which the figure had seemed to be seated, but neither was there pressure of the grass, nor any other circumstance, to induce him to believe that what he had seen was real and substantial. Full of those strange thoughts and confused apprehensions which awake in the bosom of one who conceives he has witnessed some preternatural appearance, the master of Ravenswood walked back towards his horse, frequently, however, looking behind him, not without apprehension, as if expecting that the vision would reappear. But the apparition, whether it was real or whether it was the creation of a heated and agitated imagination, returned not again, and he found his horse sweating and terrified, as if experiencing that agony of fear with which the presence of a supernatural being is supposed to agitate the brute creation. The master mounted and rode slowly forward, soothing his steed from time to time, while the animal seemed internally to shrink and shudder, as if expecting some new object of fear at the opening of every glade. The rider, after a moment's consideration, resolved to investigate the matter further. Can my eyes have deceived me, he said, and deceived me for such a space of time? Or are this woman's infirmities but feigned, in order to excite compassion? And even then, her motion resembled not that of a living and existing person. Must I adopt the popular creed, and think that the unhappy being has formed a league with the powers of darkness? I am determined to be resolved. 
I will not brook imposition, even from my own eyes. In this uncertainty, he rode up to the little wicket of Alice's garden. Her seat beneath the birch-tree was vacant, though the day was pleasant, and the sun was high. He approached the hut, and heard from within the sobs and wailings of a female. No answer was returned when he knocked, so that, after a moment's pause, he lifted the latch and entered. It was indeed a house of solitude and sorrow. Stretched upon her miserable pallet lay the corpse of the last retainer of the house of Ravenswood, who still abode on their paternal domains. Life had but shortly departed, and the little girl by whom she had been attended in her last moments was wringing her hands and sobbing, betwixt childish fear and sorrow over the body of her mistress. The master of Ravenswood had some difficulty to compose the terrors of the poor child, whom his unexpected appearance had at first rather appalled than comforted, and when he succeeded, the first expression which the girl used intimated that he had come too late. Upon inquiring the meaning of this expression, he learned that the deceased, upon the first attack of the mortal agony, had sent a peasant to the castle to beseech an interview of the master of Ravenswood, and had expressed the utmost impatience for his return. But the messengers of the poor are tardy and negligent. The fellow had not reached the castle, as was afterwards learned, until Ravenswood had left it, and had then found too much amusement among the retinue of the strangers to return in any haste to the cottage of Alice. Meanwhile, her anxiety of mind seemed to increase with the agony of her body, and to use the phrase of baby, her only attendant, she prayed powerfully that she might see her master's son once more, and renew her warning. She died just as the clock in the distant village told one, and Ravenswood remembered, with internal shuddering, that he had heard the chime sound through the wood just before he had seen what he was now much disposed to consider as the spectre of the deceased. It was necessary, as well from his respect to the departed, as in common humanity to her terrified attendant, that he should take some measures to relieve the girl from her distressing situation. The deceased, he understood, had expressed a desire to be buried in a solitary churchyard, near the little inn of the Todd's Hole, called the Hermitage, or more commonly Armitage, in which lay interred some of the Ravenswood family and many of their followers. Ravenswood conceived it his duty to gratify this predilection, commonly found to exist among the Scottish peasantry, and dispatched baby to the neighbouring village to procure the assistance of some females, assuring her that, in the meanwhile, he would himself remain with the dead body, which, as in Thessaly of old, it is accounted highly unfit to leave without a watch. Thus, in the course of a quarter of an hour or little more, he found himself sitting a solitary guard over the inanimate corpse of her whose dismissed spirit, unless his eyes had strangely deceived him, had so recently manifested itself before him. Notwithstanding his natural courage, the master was considerably affected by a concurrence of circumstances so extraordinary. She died expressing her eager desire to see me. Can it be, then, was his natural course of reflection, can strong and earnest wishes, formed during the last agony of nature, survive its catastrophe, surmount the awful bounds of the spiritual world, 
and place before us its inhabitants in the hues and colouring of life? And why was that manifested to the eye which could not unfold its tail to the ear? And wherefore should a breach be made in the laws of nature, yet its purpose remain unknown? Vain questions, which only death, when it shall make me like the pale and withered form before me, can ever resolve. He laid a cloth, as he spoke, over the lifeless face, upon whose features he felt unwilling any longer to dwell. He then took his place in an old carved oaken chair, ornamented with his own armorial bearings, which Alice had contrived to appropriate to her own use in the pillage which took place among creditors, officers, domestics, and messengers of the law, when his father left Ravenswood Castle for the last time. Thus seated, he banished, as much as he could, the superstitious feelings which the late incident naturally inspired. His own were sad enough, without the exaggeration of supernatural terror, since he found himself transferred from the situation of a successful lover of Lucy Ashton, and an honoured and respected friend of her father, into the melancholy and solitary guardian of the abandoned and forsaken corpse of a common pauper. He was relieved, however, from his sad office sooner than he could reasonably have expected, considering the distance betwixt the hut of the deceased and the village, and the age and infirmities of three old women who came from thence, in military phrase, to relieve guard upon the body of the defunct. On any other occasion, the speed of these reverend sibyls would have been much more moderate, for the first was eighty years of age and upwards, the second was paralytic, and the third lame of a leg from some accident. But the burial duties rendered to the deceased are, to the Scottish peasant of either sex, a labour of love. I know not whether it is from the temper of the people, grave and enthusiastic as it certainly is, or from the recollection of the ancient Catholic opinions, when the funeral rites were always considered as a period of festival to the living. But feasting, good cheer, and even inebriety, were and are the frequent accompaniments of a Scottish old-fashioned burial. What the funeral feast, or dirgy, as it is called, was to the men, the gloomy preparations of the dead body for the coffin were to the women. To straight the contorted limbs upon a board used for that melancholy purpose, to array the corpse in clean linen, and over that in its woollen shroud, were operations committed always to the old matrons of the village and in which they found a singular and gloomy delight. The old women paid the master their salutations with a ghastly smile, which reminded him of the meeting betwixt Macbeth and the witches on the blasted heath of forests. He gave them some money, and recommended to them the charge of the dead body of their contemporary, an office which they willingly undertook, intimating to him at the same time that he must leave the hut in order that they might begin their mournful duties. Ravenswood readily agreed to depart, only tarrying to recommend to them due attention to the body, and to receive information where he was to find the sexton, or beadle, who had in charge the deserted churchyard of the Armitage, in order to prepare matters for the reception of old Alice in the place of repose which she had selected for herself. "'You'll no be pinched to find out Johnny Mortsew,' said the elder Sybil and still her withered cheek bore a grisly smile. He dwells near the Todd's Hole, a house of entertainment where there has been mony a blithe burlin, 
for death and drink draining are near neighbours to ain another. Aye, and that's ain true, comer," said the lame hag, propping herself with a crutch which supported the shortness of her left leg. For I mind when the father of this master of Ravenswood, that is now standing before us, sticked young Blackhall with his winger, for a rang word said our their wine, or brandy, or what not. He gied in as light as a bark, and he came out with his feet foremost. I was at the winding of the corpse. And when the blood was washed off, he was a bonny bouk of man's body. It may be easily believed that this ill-timed anecdote hastened the master's purpose of quitting a company so evil-omened and so odious. Yet, while walking to the tree to which his horse was tied, and busying himself with adjusting the girths of the saddle, he could not avoid hearing through the hedge of the little garden a conversation respecting himself betwixt the lame woman and the octogenarian sibyl. The pair had hobbled into the garden to gather rosemary, southernwood, rue, and other plants proper to be strewed upon the body, and burned by way of fumigation in the chimney of the cottage. The paralytic wretch, almost exhausted by the journey, was left guard upon the corpse, lest witches or fiends might play their sport with it. The following low, croaking dialogue was necessarily overheard by the master of Ravenswood. That's a fresh and full-grown hemlock, Annie Winnie. Mony a comer lang syne would he sought nae better horse to flee over hill and how, through mist and moonlight, and light down in the King of France's cellar. Ay, comer, but the very deal has turned as hard-hearted now as the Lord Keeper and the grit folk, that he breasts like windstain. They prick us and they pine us, and they pit us on the pinny-winkles for witches. And if I say my prayers backwards ten times hour, Satan will never give me amends of them. Did you ever see the foul thief? asked her neighbour. Nah, replied the other spokeswoman. But I trow I hae dreamed of him mony a time, and I think the day will come they will burn me for it. But never mind, comer, we hae this dollar of the master's, and we'll send doon for bread and for yell and tobacco, and a drap brandy to burn, and a wee pickle saft sugar. And be there deal or nae deal, lass, we'll hae a merry night o't. Here her leathern chops uttered a sort of cackling, ghastly laugh, resembling to a certain degree the cry of the screech owl. He is a frank man and a free-handed man, the master," said Annie Winnie, "and a comely personage, broad in the shoulders and narrow round the lunnies. He would mak a bonny corpse. I would like to hear the streaking and winding of him." It is written on his brow, Annie Winnie, returned the octogenarian, her companion, that hand of woman, or of man either, will never stracht him. Deal deal will never be laid on his back. Make you your market of that, for I hate for a sure hand. Will it be his lot to die on the battleground then, Ailsie Gourley? Will he die by the sword or the ball, as his forebears had done before him, moaning any of them? Ask nae mere questions about it. He'll no be graced so far, replied the sage. I ken you're wiser than other folk, Ailsley Gourley. But wha tells you this? Fash na your thumb about that, Annie Winnie, answered the sibyl. I hae it frae a hand sure enough. But you said you never saw the foul thief, reiterated her inquisitive companion. I hae it frae as sure a hand, said Ailsie. 
and free them that spade his fortune before the sark guide o'er his head. Hark! I hear his horse's feet riding aff, said the other. They didna sound as if good luck was with him. Mac haste, sirs, cried the paralytic hag from the cottage, and let us do what is needful, and say what is fitting, for if the dead corpse be na strachted, it will girn and thraw, and that will fear the best o' us. Ravenswood was now out of hearing. He despised most of the ordinary prejudices about witchcraft, omens, and vaticination, to which his age and country still gave such implicit credit that to express a doubt of them was accounted a crime equal to the unbelief of Jews or Saracens. He knew also that the prevailing belief concerning witches, operating upon the hypochondriac habits of those whom age, infirmity, and poverty rendered liable to suspicion, and enforced by the fear of death and the pangs of the most cruel tortures, often extorted those confessions which encumber and disgrace the criminal records of Scotland during the seventeenth century. But the vision of that morning, whether real or imaginary, had impressed his mind with a superstitious feeling, which he in vain endeavoured to shake off. The nature of the business which awaited him at the little inn called Todd's Hole, where he soon after arrived, was not of a kind to restore his spirits. It was necessary he should see Mortshugh, the sexton of the old burial ground at Armitage, to arrange matters for the funeral of Alice. And as the man dwelt near the place of her late residence, the master, after a slight refreshment, walked towards the place where the body of Alice was to be deposited. It was situated in the nook formed by the eddying sweep of a stream, which issued from the adjoining hills. A rude cavern in an adjacent rock, which in the interior was cut into the shape of a cross, formed the hermitage, where some Saxon saint had in ancient times done penance, and given name to the place. The rich Abbey of Coldingham had, in latter days, established a chapel in the neighbourhood, of which no vestige was now visible, though the churchyard which surrounded it was still, as upon the present occasion, used for the interment of particular persons. One or two shattered yew-trees still grew within the precincts of that which had once been holy ground. Warriors and barons had been buried there of old, but their names were forgotten, and their monuments demolished. The only sepulchral memorials which remained were the upright headstones which mark the graves of persons of inferior rank. The abode of the sexton was a solitary cottage adjacent to the ruined wall of the cemetery, but so low that with its thatch, which nearly reached the ground, covered with a thick crop of grass, fog, and house-leeks, it resembled an overgrown grave. On inquiry, however, Ravenswood found that the man of the last mattock was absent at a bridal, being fiddler as well as grave-digger to the vicinity. He therefore retired to the little inn, leaving a message that early next morning he would again call for the person whose double occupation connected him at once with the house of mourning and the house of feasting. An outrider of the Marquis arrived at Todd's Hole shortly after, with a message intimating that his master would join Ravenswood at that place on the following morning and the master, who would otherwise have proceeded to his old retreat at Wolf's Crag, remained there accordingly, to give meeting to his noble kinsman. End of chapter 23